I'm at a funeral and I get to talk to people about the person who passed away. Um, you get a whole bunch of interesting language that people say. Uh, people say things like, well, they're in a better place and, and they're in heaven and they're no longer in pain. And, and some of those things are more true than the other, right? There's some things that are more true, some things that are less true. But we ask questions, right, all the time. Um, where are they? Um, are they in the ground? Are they somewhere called heaven? Uh, and, and then we have bigger questions like, what does it mean to be human in this whole thing? Are we, are we a body and no more? Are we a soul trapped in a body? Are we, what are we? But because we don't like to talk about hard things and wrestle with deep things, we try to move through our grief as fast as possible and get back to reality, right? Well, Paul is refocusing what reality is. And Paul is engaging the Corinthians on something really, really important because what, what we believe about the future actually says a lot about how we live in the present. And I want you to hold on to that. Because for a lot of us in this room, we actually are going to need to unlearn some things we think we believe about the future. We have to unlearn some, some really poor Christian teaching about the future. Because what Scripture says and what a lot of us have heard and come to believe about life after death are two different things. So you guys ready for that? Get, it's going to get crazy in here. So um, here we go. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. And last week, um, last week we talked about Paul. Uh, he talks about of first importance, and he lays out this really this early creed of the church. And he talks about that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. And we leaned in on what that means, according to the scriptures. And we went all the way back to this really obscure text in Genesis chapter 15 and, uh, and unpacked that. Um, and there's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot happening today in the church world. And a lot I hear, uh, lots of the gospel I hear in the church world is all about the cross. And at times, I'm just saying at times, or at best, pushes aside the resurrection. And um, most people don't get tattoos of the resurrection. Right? I mean, how would you do that? If you do that, I want to see it. Because the cross is nothing without the resurrection. The cross is just another person getting executed. The resurrection has everything. Now, the problem is, is a lot of people, they focus on the cross. And the cross is amazing. The cross, I mean, we, we talked about the cross last week, that God walked through twice, okay? Now, the thing is, is that sometimes the resurrection is used by uh, preachers and teachers to do one of two things. One of them is to prove the divinity of Jesus, okay? And the other one is to uh, prove that the cross really does take away our sins, 
But neither one of those is the primary version reason for the resurrection. Neither one of those is the pinnacle of what the resurrection actually means. Resurrection, sorry, resurrection, the primary meaning for resurrection is that the new creation is here. That's what the primary meaning of the resurrection. That resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus drags drags the future into the present. And we're going to get into that here in a second. So there's a lot of work to do. At first, it's going to feel really boring, but I promise you, okay, there's payoff coming. There is, <laughs> you with me? Sometimes you don't believe me, and sometimes it doesn't come. So you feel like you got duped. Chapter 15, verse 12, let's start there. Paul says this, but if it is preached that Christ, Messiah, has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? See, the Corinthians didn't believe, okay? Well, they, they believed in Jesus' resurrection. They believed um, that, um, that, that Jesus rose from the dead, but they didn't believe that those who follow Jesus would also rise from the dead. Let's get into this really quick. Um, the word resurrection in Greek, all throughout the New Testament, has a specific meaning. There isn't like, hey, well, somebody thinks this and somebody thinks that. No, it has a specific meaning. It does not mean that you go to heaven when you die. That's not what resurrection means. Resurrection always means 100% of the time coming back from the dead in a physical, corporeal body. It doesn't mean that your, your spirit lives on in some metaphoric way. Resurrection actually means coming back from the dead. And so that when, G, when we say Jesus is back from the dead, we don't mean that his spirit lives on like a butterfly. We actually mean flesh and blood, the tomb is empty, it's not a metaphor. In fact, Jesus, one of my favorite, Jesus comes back from the dead and he, and, he, and, he, and he shows up to his disciples and he asks them for something to eat. Like he's hungry, physically. So the Corinthians believe in Jesus' resurrection. They also believe in life after death, Okay. The problem was is the Corinthians didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. They didn't believe that, that the human, the regular Joe human being would have experienced resurrection. And, and why don't they buy this? This has been something that Paul has taught, but they didn't buy this. And they didn't buy this because they live in a Greco-Roman culture. They live in a Greco-Roman culture, and this Greco-Roman culture informs what they believe about the afterlife, okay? And so in Greco-Roman culture, really the, the predominant mainline view is Plato. It's a Platonic thinking, the philosopher Plato. And, and, and Plato believed, this is very quick, but Plato believed that there were two simultaneous worlds happening at the same time. The material world, the physical, corporeal world, and a spiritual world. To Plato, the physical world was evil. It was not to be celebrated. 
It was going to pass away. But the real you, okay, the real you is the soul, the spirit inside of you that one day, uh, and, and the, it, that's the real you, the immaterial you, and one day that real you at death, your soul was set free from the prison of your body, okay? It's set free and, and, and it goes to a, a place that's non-body, otherworldly, spiritual bliss, floating wispiness, as Dan said to me this morning. And some of you are probably sitting there going, isn't that what the Bible teaches? Isn't, isn't, doesn't this sound a little familiar, right? Don't we have that kind of language in our own circles? See, a huge majority of us, modern Western Jesus followers, actually talk about life after death like this. We talk about that. And, and it's kind of this version of Plato mixed with Paul. Okay? We believe in life after death. We believe that Jesus was resurrected. But we believe that we just kind of float off and we're in heaven one day. And we have unlearning to do. And it's going to be fun. Verse 13, Paul says this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, okay, he's saying, okay, let's just say you're right, Corinthians, and there's no resurrection of the dead. Um, let's say Plato is right. Let's say you are all right. And then he says this, then not even Christ has been raised. Then not even Messiah has been raised. Then Jesus is a myth, is what he's saying. He goes on. He's, he lists like seven things here. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Basically, he says, your faith in the gospel is a waste of time. Then he goes on. It gets even better. Verse 15. More than that, we are, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So Paul says, basically, I myself and all the early witnesses are liars. Then he amps it up even more. He says this in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if, and if Messiah has not been raised, your faith is futile. Basically, this is all a waste of time, and it's not going to affect anything. Okay? Then he goes on to uh, say that, and, you're <laughs> and you are still in your sins. So you're still, you're still guilty in the sight of God. And, and, then, and then, here we go, verse 18, he says, then those who also who have fallen asleep in, in Messiah are lost. He says, your loved ones that have already died who knew Jesus, they're just gone. They're gone. And then verse 19, he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, we are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. Basically, he says, the final piece of this is, if resurrection didn't happen, then we're, we're pretty pitiful for even doing any of this. 
So do you think Paul has a strong opinion about resurrection? Just a little bit. He's pushed all of his chips into the middle of the table. He's placed everything on this. And to Paul, the resurrection is the key to everything. It's at the center of the gospel. And to, not, to deny the future resurrection is to deny the gospel. And that's what Paul's getting at. He says the gospel stands or falls on Jesus' resurrection. It stands or falls on that, not the cross, because remember, the cross has a lot, of, a lot of messianic people died on the cross, but without the resurrection, when you piece those two, you got to piece those two things together, that's what stands or falls. And so just to recap here, the way of Jesus is not five steps to a better life. The way of Jesus is not a path of spirituality, and the way of Jesus is not simply how you go to heaven when you die according to Paul. It's something way bigger than that. It is the story about real events that happened in the world. Real events that happened in the world. And if that story is not true, then it all falls apart, Paul says. And he goes on to verse 20, he says, but Messiah has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, okay, and that's, that word man is anthropos, which is basically a human. Death came through a human, and he's referring to Adam here. The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, a human, Jesus. For as Adam, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So the short version, he just parallels Jesus and, and Adam, and because of Adam's sin and his death, and all are born from the start like that, we are all born into sin and death, and the stats on sin and death are pretty, pretty huge. Um, and, and it says all, okay, now, now all, not all humans in the world who ever live, all, but all the Jesus, um, but all who are in Jesus are now part of this resurrection in this life. Basically, everything that is true about Jesus is now true of you. So if Jesus resurrected from the dead, that means at some point in time, you have to come back from the dead because you are in Jesus. That's what scripture teaches. And, 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 G, and Paul says this, but each in turn, Messiah, the first fruits, then when he comes those who belong to him. And this is second coming language when Jesus comes back. The whole metaphor is based off of a farming metaphor, which I'm sure you guys are all familiar with. But it's the idea that that first crop that comes, that first peach, that first tomato, that first whatever, and, and is a sign, right? It's a sign that there's more to come, that there's going to be more. And Jesus is that first ripened fruit, that sign that there's more to come, followed by more and more and more and exponentially more. See, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is only the beginning, according to Paul. And it set in motion a chain of events that cannot be undone, according to Paul. So what happened to Jesus will one day happen to all those who follow Jesus. Does that make sense? Are you with me? This is what Paul's working. He says, 
You know, and you're probably sitting there going, wait, are you saying that one day my body post-mortem will come back out of the ground? Yes. That's what I am saying. But what about heaven? Well, we'll get to that. See, that is the future of the gospel. And if that sounds weird, that's because we live in a world and we are formed by a worldview that is a byproduct of Paul and Plato. That the, flat, that the material is bad and I can't wait to get rid of it and float, float around, play a harp. What's with the harp, Right? So, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, which depending on how you interpret the book of Revelation, this is the longest chapter on the future in Scripture. Okay? So, listen, Paul does not use the word heaven in all of chapter 15. Not once. There is no heaven in chapter 15. Now, the problem is, is that you and I have baggage, we have linguistic baggage, right? We hear the word heaven. And we, get, we have three versions of, in the English word of heaven, two of which come from the Bible. One comes from just pop culture, okay? The first one that comes from the Bible, whenever the Bible says heaven, not whenever, but some of the time when the Bible says heaven, it actually means the heavens, like the sky and the stars and the solar system, the heavens, and, and you can read this language all throughout uh, the scriptures. The second version of heaven is when scripture reverse, refers to God's dwelling place. And you probably remember this uh, from the um, passage in scripture where Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray. And it's called the Lord's Prayer. And when Jesus says, may your will be done on earth, what? As it is in heaven. So the second meaning we get from scripture about heaven is actually where God's will is done. The place where God's rule and reign is happening, the place where everything is how it's supposed to be, that there's shalom, that everything works, that everything's in right relationship, that is heaven. And the image of God on a throne, there's a purpose for that imagery because it, it actually, it, that imagery pushes us to believe that God is actually ruling and in charge and reigning where God is ruling, not dictators, not our sexuality, not money, not power. God's will is being done, not anarchy, not war, not famine, not discrimination. See, that's heaven. Heaven is a place where God is in control. Now, we get the word, the adverb in, in, in Scripture all the time, heavenly, and that's found all over the Bible, and that doesn't mean otherworldly. Heavenly means under God's rule and under God's reign and under God's, in, in God's presence. So when someone says, man, that cake was heavenly, well, it doesn't mean it's under the rule and reign of God, 
although it might be. I've had some of those. But the point is, is that in Scripture, that's what heavenly means. And so when Paul says one day we will have heavenly bodies, it doesn't mean we're going to have floating bodies. It means we're going to have bodies that are under the full rule and reign of God, completely how God intended them to be, functioning and flourishing in the way God intended them to be from the beginning. Now, the third version of heaven that we get is from pop culture. Pop culture, the place where you live with God forever, that that idea of going to heaven when you die. That is nowhere in, in the Bible. Literally nowhere. And some of you are probably like, but that's why I signed up for this whole thing. Maybe some of you are like, I signed up for the heaven thing because I didn't want to go to the hell thing. Right? But literally, it's not about going to heaven when you die. At all. There's something bigger at work here. Something fuller, something deeper. And so whenever I hear the word heaven, see, the Bible talks all the time about a dwelling with God, but never once does it call it heaven. And whenever I hear the word heaven, because I am just trained in my own language, it's always somewhere else, right? Heaven's always somewhere else in my mind. But that is not how the Bible talks about God's future. See, there's a difference between at a popular level and what the Bible actually teaches. And I think it's really important that we unlearn a little bit because that version of Christianity is a two-step story. And some of you believed in the two-step story of Christianity, meaning there's life here on earth, then there's life after death, and I go to heaven if I know Jesus. And, and we hear goofy language like heaven is my home, and at funerals, she's home now, she's at home. And we've all done it, we've all said those things, we've all thought those way, and there's something about actually believing in that two-step story. Something about that two-step story, that life here on earth and then there's go to heaven. Um, It actually says something about what you believe about humanity and about redemption and about the extent of God's plan for all those who follow Jesus. That That it ends there. That it's about, right now it's about earth and our mission is to get as many people into heaven, right? Now, some of you are about to throw something at me. Hang with me, okay? What, what Paul is saying here is something bigger than that. It includes that, but it doesn't end there. Does that make sense? Trust me, here, here's where we're going. He says a great deal about what things are important. When, when we think of a two-step version of this, that there's here on earth and then there's heaven, we, it says a great deal about all the things that are important to us and not important to us in the here and now. But scripture always teaches a three-step story. The three-step story goes like this. Life in the here and now, beautiful broken, sorrow, grief, pain, joy, then we, then we die. 
You know, there's all these beautiful things here and there's all these hard things here. Then there's life after death. At death, okay, at death, your body is torn apart from your, from your, from your spirit. Your body goes into the ground and your spirit goes to be with Jesus if you follow Jesus. And, and, there's the, and scripture doesn't talk much about this point. At death, you step into a new reality. You step into God's presence. But that's not the end of the story. According to Paul, that is not the end of the story. To borrow a line from a guy named N.T. Wright, there is life after, life after death. And this is where resurrection happens. And this is when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, your spirit and your body are reunited and he recreates you back into the person God intended to live forever here on earth with God. And some of you are like, I've never heard that before. That's the scriptures. That's the teaching of these scriptures. The problem is, is that the vast majority of us don't really, we haven't heard that enough. Listen to what the part of the future, okay, that part, that future part, that step three part, that resurrection part, that future in the Bible is never once called heaven. You know what Isaiah calls it? I'll throw some of these on the screen. Isaiah calls it the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus calls it the renewal of all things. John calls it eternal life. Paul calls it the age to come or the kingdom of God. Peter calls it the time for God to restore everything. But the problem is the vast majority of our lyrics, some of our teaching and our conversation that I hear all the time in the contemporary church focuses on step two. Focuses on, uh, and it's not bad, it's just not complete. Does that make sense? Like, I didn't rip that from you. I'm just giving you a whole lot more. Scripture is always focused on step three, resurrection, the new creation. The Bible actually says very little about what happens to you when you die. Quick synopsis, in the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, it says nothing. It says nothing. In the poets and the prophets, Psalms and stuff like that, it says, it talks about Sheol, which is this underworld place where you wait. Um, it's kind of some weird imagery stuff there. Jesus in Luke talks about Sheol. He also talks about this place called Abraham's bosom. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's some stuff like that. And, and Jesus also talks about death as sleep. Paul uses the metaphor sleeping in 1 Corinthians 15, four times. I believe it's four times, but you can check. Um, and, and, and it's like this idea of those who have fallen asleep, those, those who have passed from step one to step two. And, and we really don't get a whole lot of clarity until first, uh, Philippians, and, and, and Paul writes this about 15 years or so later. And he writes this in 1 first, first, uh, sorry, first Philippians, just Philippians. Philippians 1, 21, he says, for me to live is Christ, for me to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. Who talks like that? Who talks like that? 
talks about it, it, someone who talks like that is someone who knows something more is coming, something bigger is coming, way better is coming. He says, I am to go, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I want you to remember that language for later, fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. If I, de- I desire to depart and be with Messiah, which is far better, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. How he talks about departing to be with Messiah and that is far better. This idea of a sleep is not you're just going to sleep. It's actually this, this idea of being actually awake and alive in God's presence, but at rest. It does not call it heaven. When we get to the last book of Scripture in Revelation, the first few chapters talk about the churches. John is talking about a little prophecy about the churches that were happening right then. And then in chapters four through six, you get four through six, you get a glimpse into heaven, what we think of as heaven. That second, that, that where we go after death. And there's this throne room imagery and there's all these creatures around God's throne. And, and I think this is really important, so you need to get this. When John is talking in, in chapters four through six, John is not talking about what it'll be like in the future in, he, in, the, in, in heaven, being in God's presence. It's all about the present, what is happening right now for people who follow Jesus and who have died and are with God in, in, in God's presence. What's happening as we speak? Listen to these, these words out of, of Revelation chapter 5, uh, Revelation 5, verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe in every language and people and nation. This is just beautiful imagery. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And listen to this. And they will reign on the earth. And we all get the singing part because we all think that that's, you're going to go to heaven and and I remember as a kid, they're just like, and we're just going to sing. And I'm like, that sounds lame. And, you know, we get, we get some of our language from this, some of the hymns, when we've been there 10,000 years, right? Bright shining is the sun. We've no less days to sing God praise. You know, that's really important stuff. But that line that has been just wrecking me, is and they will reign on the earth. And they will reign on the earth. What are they singing about? Yeah, they're singing about the holiness of God, yes. But they're also singing about the future, specifically what God will do in the future on earth. And that those who follow Jesus will actually reign on earth. Revelation 6, 9 through 11 is a glimpse into the present heaven right now. He says this, 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So it's a glimpse of what is happening after death for those who have followed Jesus. So they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed, were killed just as they had been. Now, for me, that blows up all the stereotypes I have about the heaven. There's no clouds and harps and blonde Swedish women, angel paintings. Um, there's none of that stuff. It's, it's this, this powerful time. They're focused, they're praying for the earth and they're crying out, how long? How long? How long will all this injustice and this violence and the bloodshed, how long will this last? How long, O Lord, until you put it all back together, until you restore everything, until you renew everything, until you make everything right? And Jesus answers, and he doesn't say, hey, relax, you're in heaven. What do you care? You're just floating around, being all bored, It's not what Jesus says. What does he say? Wait. He says, wait. Hold on. Hold out. Stand firm. He's like, judgment is coming. Resurrection is coming. New creation is coming. And that is all we get about life after death. That's all we get. Scripture has not, doesn't have a ton to say about life after death, but it has a ton to say about life after life after death. Listen to this. This comes out of Isaiah 65. It's one of my favorite passages about this. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. Now, don't read too much into that. That's basically language saying we are going to flourish, that children aren't going to die, that you are going to live, that you are going to live and live and live, and and they will build houses in, in verse 21 and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will experience what it's like to, to build and plant and, 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 and love that part of it. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. No more injustice is what that says. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. Ladies and gentlemen, you will work and you will love it. It'll be the kind of work that actually works. 
Do you ever have those days at work where it's like, dude, everything just came together perfect. People answered the phone and this happened. And, and have you ever had those days where it's just like, I feel like I'm doing nothing. This, the idea behind this is everything is going to flourish. It goes all the way back to the garden and it talks about the curse of Adam and he will toil in, the, in this and the ground and, and there'll be a pain, it'll be hard, but this, everything will flourish. They will not labor in vain, it says in verse 23. They will not, uh, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune for they will be a people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. They will be in tune with God in his presence. And it says in verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Some people interpret that that we're all gonna be vegans. And I just don't think so. At least I hope not. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. That is how the Bible talks about the future. That is the life waiting for all of us who follow Jesus. Does that sound like a non-bodily, up-in-the-sky, floaty, harpy, cloud existence? No. If it sounds like heaven on earth, it's because it literally is. It literally is. And then the final piece of scripture in Revelation, and this is John picking up on Isaiah's imagery. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This actually, that word new, is fascinating. I read this week. That word new that John uses is the same word that Paul uses when he talks about that you and I are a new creation the old is gone and the new has come. Remember that? You remember that language? That word new is actually better translated renewed in the sense that um, we are not, we're new creations, but like I'm still the same physical person. I, I still have the same personality. I still have a lot of the same things. God is doing something new in me. He's remaking me. He's renewing me. Does that make sense? He doesn't scrap me and start over. And the problem is, is a lot of people have got it in their heads that God is gonna scrap everything. He's gonna burn this mother down and start over. And that is not what this language is. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a renewed heaven. Same word, like I said, Paul uses the, for us being made new. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That, that means they, they, are, they are moving into the past. And they are no longer, okay, there was no longer any sea. The sea metaphor is for violence. So in, the, in, the, in the, this day and age, the idea of the sea was, was violent and anarchist and evil. That um, actually when you went out to sea, and, and a lot of the stories of Jesus and the calming of the waves and the calming of the waters, that wasn't Jesus calming the waves and the waters. That actually had a spiritual reality for everybody who watched Jesus because they believed that spirit, like evil spirits, lived in the depths. And what John is saying, there's no more sea, there's no more evil, there's no more anarchy, there's no more violence. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, meaning it's like a wedding of heaven and earth. 
So when Jesus said, this is how we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what is going to happen one day, that heaven and earth are going to be wedded. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. His rule and reign will be with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne here on earth He was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he just, he talks about the shape and the design of the city and what that will look like. Later on in Revelation uh, 21, 24, it says the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. So all these different peoples um, and on, uh, on no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. That means culture and beauty and all these things. It's not like there just won't be country music. Everything else is invited into heaven. You guys hate me, but I'm just going to keep doing it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. That's the country music part. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, the short version is that the beginning of Scripture talked about a garden, and then the end of Scripture talks about a garden city. And there's architecture and rivers, and and (laughs) I think there's going to be urban planning, and there's going to be so much happening in this place. And so saying, listen, Human history begins in a garden and it ends in a garden-like city. And imagine fresh air and food and flourishing work, a city on earth, streets and dwelling, creative beauty, all of that in the new Eden. And, and all of that for people who have followed Jesus, who've repented and come before Jesus and have begun to become made new. And listen to this. If you've given your earthly allegiance to Jesus, your future will be building and making and shaping and collaborating and eating and drinking and feasting and loving and relating and worshiping and living in God's presence for eternity. That's what scripture says. Now, does what you believe about the future change how you live in the present? Because, listen, what does it have to do with my life? Everything. It has everything to do with your life. Because if you think that the story of the gospel ends with God abandoning the world and rescuing souls up to heaven as the world just spins and and sinks like the Titanic, then that's going to change how you live in the present. It's like some action movie at the end where God's just rescuing us and then it it all explodes, right? That's how it's been communicated to me. I mean, I used to think it's all going to burn up anyway. And I, I have to repent of that. Because if you have that mindset, okay, why take care of your body if it's just the prison house of your soul? Why take care of the planet and creation if it's not my home? 
And let me just say, in the last number of decades, the, the, the church has led this idea that said, hey, this place is all going to just burn up anyway, so who cares if we strip mine? Who cares if we pollute? It's wrong. Why go to Nicaragua? Why work for clean water in Nicaragua like many of us have done and some of us are going to do? Why work with Arvada High, two blocks south of us? Why work against injustice and poverty and disease? Why not just work to get the life we want and mix in some church here and there and add a little Jesus on the side? That seems fine, right? Seems good enough, right? Why do any of that? If we all just get rescued out of here at the end of the story, why work hard at your job? Why do, why do anything really well? Because isn't it just about holding the golden ticket? But if that's not the true story about the gospel, if the, this true story about the gospel ends with the redemption of all things, then that's going to shape how we live. That's going to shape how we live. Now, just to close, my notes are just about over. You're like, yeah, that doesn't mean anything. But it does, trust me. Two ways I think we can approach life. One is the escapist view. And this shows up in everyday life. Your marriage isn't heaven. your marriage is broken and it's not heaven and you each turn to other things to try to escape or maybe you're experiencing a life that you wished you didn't have or maybe you're sad that there's, you're not experiencing the life you wished you had and maybe you're sitting here today and, and escape for you has been alcohol or distraction or the phone or the internet or the Xbox. Maybe your escape has actually been into church things. Maybe you're just like, man, I'm just going to throw myself into the church and church things and Bible studies and reading and Caleb and all that kind of stuff. I'm just going to escape into that. But when things are broken and, and we yearn for something bigger, um, we have a chance of really making some really, really poor choices. What about engagement, though? Like, if this is actually true, the other way to live would be to join Jesus in the redemptive work that Jesus is already doing, like right now. Now, at the last line of this letter, the last line of chapter 15, Paul says, and this isn't the last line of the letter, it's just the last line of this chapter. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor, 
There's that word labor again. And the Lord is not in vain. He said, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Don't, your labor, this is your work in the Lord. And what is the work of the Lord? The work of the Lord is the renewal of everything. The work of the Lord at the center is, is not just changing people's allegiances to Jesus and saving their soul to go to heaven. That's part of it. But also very much part of it is joining Jesus and watching Jesus remake the world from the inside out. We're not called to escape. We're called to engage. That's the difference. And far too many of us have retreated from engagement. It's messy. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. But if we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, our Father in that place where your will is done, in, in that place where your will, you're your reigning, you're ruling, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We cannot pray that prayer. We can't pray it unless we make ourselves available to be instruments to which that prayer gets answered. And so what you believe about the future changes everything about how you live in the present. And so this morning, Elliot and the band come up. May you reflect on this. And, and maybe if you're sitting here for the first time and you've heard this story and you're like, yeah, I just heard about heaven and hell and Jesus and being saved and, 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 and I, didn't, I didn't really connect with that. But I'm, but I'm in on this. I mean, this sounds, this is, this is way bigger, way fuller, way more beautiful. And I would encourage you to make this an opportunity of switching your allegiance. Switching your allegiance over to the, the King, the Lord, the Messiah. Let me pray. Heavenly Father.